This is an ABC podcast. Hello from David Rutledge. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone once again, and welcome to part two of About Time, which is a four-part series about time that's running through September. This week, we're taking a literary turn, and our guide through the library is Sam Barron. Authors have an almost supernatural capacity to control time. They can speed time up, slow it down, reorder it or destroy it completely. But how do they manage to do this? And more importantly, what are they trying to tell us about the nature of time itself? In this episode, we'll take a look at the fascinating connection between time and literature. Our tale starts in the early 20th century with the rise of modernism. Modernists like James Joyce and Virginia Woolf seem tormented by time. Joyce's massive tome Ulysses describes the events of a day in such excruciating detail that it's like he can't bear for even a single moment to slip through his fingers. Here to help guide us through the world of modernist literature and beyond is Associate Professor Tanya Dalziel, Chair of English and Literary Studies at the University of Western Australia. Tanya's latest book, Half the Perfect World, won the Prime Minister's Literary Award for nonfiction in 2019. Tanya, thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, there's a lot going on in this period with respect to time, both in philosophy and science. So in science, you've got, of course, uh, people like Einstein thinking uh, about time in a completely new way. In philosophy, you have John McTaggart, who is arguing that uh, time doesn't exist or time is a kind of illusion. I suppose I'm interested in the ways in which some of the themes that philosophers are exploring or scientists are exploring might be interacting with what's happening in modernist literature. So you've got the modernists who are really focusing on this felt time, but then philosophers and physicists looking at time in this kind of almost, you know, objective, um, person-independent kind of way. What Do you think there's some, any kind of interaction there between what's happening in philosophy and science and what's happening in, in modernist literature? Yeah, I mean, to, start, to answer that question, it's useful to remember that many modernists shared interests with the work of the French philosopher Henri Bergson. So Bergson's writing on time of the mind were translated and published in British journals during the first decades of the 20th century. And his ideas of pure duration resonated with um, what many modernists were seeking to narrativise in their innovations of language. So they weren't simply applying Bergson's ideas to literary forms, but there was a shared project across the channel. So Bergson was offering a critique of Kant's critique of pure reason in which um, Kant posited time and space as both a priori forms of sensibility, so at once kind of empirically real and transcendentally ideal, and the idea that human action um, kind of was defined by natural causality. But Bergson stepped into that discussion and proposed to differentiate time and space, and he thought of consciousness as temporal. And the narrative stream of consciousness that we get in modernist texts like Ulysses or like Mrs. Dalloway suggest this interest in the temporality of consciousness and both Ulysses and Mrs. Dalloway through their protagonists of Leopold Bloom and Clarissa Dalloway respectively suggest that the past and the present um, constellate. So there's there's a complication of the idea of linear time, for example, that the calendar might suggest or that 
the clock time might suggest as well. Yeah, so the the focus on Kant's really interesting here as well. So for for Kant, we're thinking of time as being almost a, an aspect of human cognition, which is applied to empirical information to structure it and give it form. And so it's something that really comes from us rather than comes from the world. Do you think that there's a sort of element in this stream of consciousness of sort of thinking of time as something that we inject into reality rather than something that's there to be discovered? Yeah, I think it's it's a recognition of the, both possibilities, to be honest, in, in the sense that, you know, there is that sense of the social time, but there is also the sense of, you know, this private time that the modernists are really interested in exploring both thematically and stylistically. So I think, again, it's not fence-sitting, but I think they've just got this interest in time and its multiplicity. So they're not didactic or necessarily pushing a particular thesis around time, they're, they're thinking about the multiplicities of times and the possibilities of them through their literary forms. And I think this is where you get almost a tension with the approach that philosophers and scientists might take, where the goal is really to kind of pin time down, nail it down, get an account of what it is. And yet there's this sort of sense that maybe there's something a little bit too aggressive about that project, a little bit too, as you put it, didactic, that maybe what you, maybe a sort of more open perspective is something that we should explore and that that's something that you get out of these kind of modernist explorations of time. Yeah, I think that's certainly the invitation to kind of think multiply about time um, and to grapple with that question of how do you represent time? I mean, in the sense that, you know, to say what is the time seems relatively easy. You can look at a clock and you say what, what the time is. But to kind of pose that question, you know, what is time is you know, opening yourself up to all kinds of philosophical headaches and literature is one of the ways in which we can think with and through time rather than necessarily packaging it up in an easy manner. Yes, that's a really interesting idea that that you can use fiction as a way of thinking in and through time. One of the things you mentioned was that there's a kind of a challenge to linear time happening in some of this work. So how are the ways in which uh, linear time gets challenged in, for instance, something like Ulysses or or in uh, in the work of Virginia Woolf? Yeah, so stylistically, oftentimes these challenges are posed insofar as modernist texts are infamously um, difficult because of the ways in which they think about time formally, so the way in which their narratives are presented. So sometimes when we think about narratives, they work through cause and effect. So something happens and then something else happens and then you get to an end point. Modernist texts don't work like that. So they oftentimes jump around, past enters into the present, disrupts the present. They sometimes start at one point and then jump to somewhere else and then go somewhere else from there. So they're not texts that adhere to a linear model of time. And they're also not interested necessarily in thinking about realism in the way that that was understood in the 19th century. They looked around and saw modernity ushering in certain challenges and new innovations and they were looking in their literature for ways of representing what they saw as new about them. So, you know, the discussions around time through Bergson's work, for example, you know, was a challenge for thinking about how do you represent this idea of felt time in in words you know it's a very interesting thing to be thinking about which is what modernist texts very often do and so you say that they're not sort of interested in uh realism can you say a little bit more about what you mean by that i mean realism in the sense of the 19th century so again this is a horrible reductive caricature but thinking about realism as interested in 
you know, the material world, the presumption that language is a reliable medium by which to convey meaning, those kinds of things, whereas modernist texts have a kind of suspicion about language. They're, they're aware of the ways in which, you know, during the First World War, words were harnessed for propaganda purposes, for example. So they're very much interested in thinking about how maybe the world comes into being through the words that we have available to talk about the world rather than words just simply reflecting the world. And that, I think, also comes up with their interest in time. So language isn't just something simply that we have at hand to discuss time, but language itself is a way of shaping time or shaping our thinking about time, at least, which I think recalls us to the ways in which we very often rely on metaphor for thinking about time. So we can think about time as, you know, a river or a stream or, you know, these other kinds of metaphors that we lean on to think about time can, to some degree, perhaps give shape to our thinking about time and, ha- and how we feel it and, and what we, um, how we respond to time. All right, what I'd like to do now is take us back in time a little bit uh, into the 19th century and think a little bit about literature and time then. So in the 19th century, we've got Newton and his picture of time, and Newton's picture of time is one that's quite different to the picture of time that we have in the 20th century. So for Newton, time really is this kind of almost mechanistic thing, this clock that ticks away and beats the counts of the universe in regularity. And what I'm interested in is how Newton's picture of time or his understanding of time might have influenced literature and narrative around the uh, 19th century. So is there a sense in which Newton's thinking about time gets picked up in literature or or has an effect on literature uh, during that period? Yeah, well, I guess in some ways, um, and to think about the influence of Newton's ideas about time on 19th century literature, it is to also sidestep the flurry of interest in time and timekeeping that was also based in practical development. So the ontological distinction that Newton made between kind of absolute mathematical time and relative common time continued to fuel philosophical debate well into the 19th century over what time does or feels. And his mechanistic universe that saw time as universal and unchanging in the medium through which everything moved probably found expression in time travel narratives such as H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, which we were speaking about before. But there was much that was going on in the 19th century in terms of technological developments that 19th century literature also registered. So if we think about England in the mid-1600s, time devices such as pocket watches and domestic clocks were largely um, interesting ornaments and gadgets for the social elite than anything else. And at that time during the mid-1600s, church bells and diurnal diurnal circles um, largely regulated communities. And there wasn't such a thing as national time. But if we skip forward to the 1830s, um, time-telling was becoming increasingly secularised and a synchronous national time was being developed to support trade and travel. And we also saw timepieces increasingly owned by the middle and lower classes and As a consequence, their chimes rang throughout the 19th century and its literature. So someone like Charles Dickens um, and his serialised writing is probably a case in point, both thematically and stylistically. One of the serials that Dickens wrote 
1840-1841, was titled Master Humphrey's Clock. And in that serial, we have a protagonist who stores manuscripts in a grandfather clock and clocks chime throughout Dickens's writing. But it's also interesting to think about how the very seriality of Dickens' writing was also pointing to how this new synchronous time was making new demands on literature. So Dickens had to write instalments to weekly deadlines and the clocks around him were shaping how and what he wrote. So there's this kind of interesting sense that this new time that was being ushered in the 19th century was also determining how literature was being written at the same time as that literature was representing thematically these clocks. Um, it might also be worthwhile mentioning that in between the 17th and 19th century is Lawrence Stern's mid-century mid-18th century text, The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy. And that text is marked um, by the kind of temporal depressions that modernism would later claim as its own. And it has this notorious opening in which Walter Shandy is asked by his wife, and this is happening while they're having sex, if he's wound the long case clock, which is like the grandfather clock. So it's quite an opening and it draws together at least three times, kind of psychological time, um, reproductive biorhythms and also these new forms of objective timekeeping. So time is definitely present in literature largely all the time. There's a, a lot that I'm interested in there. One of the things I'm really interested in is this notion of serialization. So is it the case that serialization is kind of new and in some sense invented by Dickens when he's developing these novels? Or is it an aspect of literature that was around before, but um, Dickens then merely took hold of and used? Yeah, so the seriality was certainly before, you know, it's kind of emerging around the time that Dickens was writing. So he was writing for newspapers and then following that, his novels would appear as novels. So he was often writing as, in terms of serialisations, but they were, you know, writing to deadlines of this new kind of weekly instalment. Um, whereas, you know, in the past, that wasn't an issue. There were no such things as weekly instalments because newspapers didn't come out weekly. So that kind of change in how time was being instituted industrially through the publishing industry had an impact on the demands on authors at the time. And do you think this makes a difference in Dickens' writing? Do you see a kind of sense of urgency in virtue of the serialisation of the novel that he's writing, or is it something that doesn't really show up in, in what he writes? No, I think it very much does in the sense that there's the, you know, the invitation to write in such a way that you end with a cliffhanger, just like the serials of today do on TV, so that you're encouraged to go and buy the next paper so that you know what happens next. So there is certainly an impact on the rhythm of Dickens' writing in that regard. You're in the Philosopher's Zone. This week, we're all about time. In fact, this is part two of a four-part series that's all about time. Sam Barron is talking with the University of Western Australia's Tanya Dalziel about time in fiction and the way that novelists have reflected and engaged with the philosophy of time of their particular eras. I want to time travel again. This time I'm going to jump much further into the future from the times that we've been looking at. So, so far we've talked a little bit about the 20th, early 20th century. We've talked a little bit about 19th century. I want to come forward now to the kind of postmodern era, the period that arguably we might be in now with respect to fiction. 
what happens to time once we get to sort of the modern day, once we're looking at time from a kind of postmodern perspective in literature? I guess my way of starting to think about this is, you know, if we're thinking about some theorisings around literature that perhaps go by the name of postmodernism, we might think of theories such as John Baudrillard or Paul Rilio. I guess their interests are with the ways in which it could be said that virtuality has gained dominance over materiality and how these are registered in contemporary literature. And perhaps that there's an interest in the contemporary moment of the compression of time. So you, know, you think about novels like Don Delilo's White Noise, which was published in 1985. Um, here's this really famous scene or now famous scene in the novel where he talks about the most photographed barn in America that disappears under the weight of repetition and the image. And this is this idea of simulacra, which is um, has been popularised by the works of John Baudrillard. In a later novel by Delilo, um, Point Amiga from 2010, he has a character who reflects on time by watching Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho slowed down to a 24-hour running time. And we're told in that instance that we need time to lose interest in things. And I think what those examples direct us towards at least thinking about is that postmodernity perhaps promises in some ways to do away with time. So with the instantaneity that's ushered in by various technologies, we have perhaps a compression of time and space. And in terms of form, the plastic arts and e-arts might be better positioned to realise or represent this compression formally because in many ways the written text is still formally tied to time insofar as one word follows another. So there is that sense of time attached to narratives. But definitely postmodern texts and postmodern theorising kind of poses the question as to whether time has been compressed to the point that instantaneity has overridden the idea of time as we perhaps have known it in modernist and in the 19th century eras. You put this in terms of doing away with time. I'm wondering also if there's a sense in which there's a kind of mastery of time that's coming out. So, you know, you've got this person who's watching Psycho slowed down to a 24-hour period and they've got the power in some sense to do that and to manipulate time in a way that maybe we didn't think of ourselves as having that capacity prior to the late 20th century? Is there something about not just doing away with time, but like bringing it under our control, pulling it out of nature and putting it in our hands? Absolutely. I think it's both in the sense, again, that capacity of literature to consider these things simultaneously, as it were. So I definitely think that scene about watching Psycho in slow motion does have a kind of fantasy of having a mastery over time. I mean, so often time is seen as something that we're racing against or that, you know, is kind of an enemy in some regard. And that scene sets up the idea that we might have this kind of mastery over time. But at the same time, you know, there is this kind of debate over whether those very technologies that allow us to ostensibly slow down time and have mastery over it, whether those technologies are also doing away with time. I always feel with postmodern literature that I'm being set up in some sense. So, you know, they'll, they'll offer this potential mastery of time, but at the same time, when it comes down to it, it feels like the themes are such that, you know, time might take control of me or the, the thing that I'm supposed to be able to control is going to take control of me. Is there a sense in which the way that 
this mastery of time might be coming out in these texts is kind of duplicitous. So sort of while offering us a kind of mastery, perhaps they're also suggesting that uh, this is something that we are a slave to in some sense, that time is not something that we can control. In some ways, I wonder if it's a kind of fantasy insofar as postmodernism has a concern with a disassemblage of kind of grand narratives. So it, it kind of calls into question, you know, nationalism, all the kinds of certainties that perhaps would otherwise orientate us as, you know, contemporary subjects. So I think in some ways these scenarios that we see in postmodernist texts are less about trying to be duplicitous or to give us a false sense of what we might think of as our relationship with time. It's kinds of fantasies so that, you know, the idea that we might have control over time is a kind of fantasy that it then disassembles, and, and knowingly so as well. These kinds of moments are just simply, I think, not simply, but they're, they're kind of moments of fantasy of thinking about, well, what if we did have mastery over time um, when, in fact, we know that we might not, <laughs> that kind of thing. Okay, so, so far we've been looking at time in the 19th century, in the 20th century, and in the modern period, and we've been jumping around a little bit. What I want to do is zoom out completely and and almost look at literature and narrative from a kind of timeless perspective and think about the way in which, in a very general sense, regardless of the era in which someone might be writing, time might be important to narrative. And it picks up on something that you mentioned earlier, namely that in a certain sense, uh, when you're writing a story or when you're um, producing a novel, one word has to follow another and there's a kind of inbuilt temporality to every narrative. So is it the case that time is kind of inescapable and essential to fiction? And is that something that people are grappling with when they're dealing with time in narrative? Yeah, I mean, again, these are horrible sweeping generalisations, but it's arguable that all narratives are about time. So in an obvious sense, you know, stories see events or thoughts unfold in time. And again, that metaphor points to how we think of time figuratively, um, given that it is otherwise inscrutable, the idea of unfolding in time. But what I also um, mean by this is that on a very uh, mechanistic level, written narratives, English at least, um, work because one word follows another. So there is that temporal dimension to narrative. Um, Paul Virilio, a postmodern theorist, argues that writing is always in deferred time, always delayed. So, you know, there is this sense of time being essential to narrative, even if there's no standard agreement on what that relationship might be. And if, I mean, I'm wondering if because time is so deeply woven into narrative, whether that makes narrative kind of uniquely positioned to disrupt time. Do you think that there's a special place for fiction in challenging how we think about time? Uh, well, I guess according to much narrative theory from basically Aristotle onwards, narrative has the capacity, if not the duty, to interrupt and rearrange raw events that otherwise take um, place causally and chronologically. So, narration itself gives shape to varying orders of time and can also explore and represent varying temporal schema. So a story can occur in media rest or it can be discontinuous. Um, it can abide by what we think of as linear time. And within the world of a text, the pace of time can be sped up or years can pass in a sentence. Um, we can see characters transported to other times. And of course, 
narratives themselves move through time insofar as we can read Shakespeare today to take an example. So in that sense, there is almost an obligation maybe for literature to be a disruptive force for thinking about time in part because of the way in which one word follows another. So there's that very much um, that yoking with time. And also just literature, because of its imaginative flexibility, certainly can disrupt our thinking about time and maybe put forward other possibilities that other disciplines don't have the freedom to do. I really like the idea that fiction has a kind of duty to disrupt time, but I'm wondering about what the upshot of this duty might be. Is there a purpose that you think uh, might be served by disrupting time in narrative? Yeah, I think I think it's, it's certainly not just doing it for the sake of it. It's to kind of make us think about how maybe time works, thinking about the kinds of pressures that time places on us and on narrative. It's also to, I think, allow other kinds of stories about time to be told. So perhaps time is harnessed by particular social organisations, whether it be capitalism or whatever name you want to give to it, to, you know, order bodies and stories in particular ways. And the fact that literature can disrupt those time schemas also perhaps lends itself to disrupting the stories that that organisation of time supports. So if time is imagined in different kinds of ways than the ways in which, say, um, a Fordist factory line imagines time, then you allow other stories and other ways of being in the world also to emerge. So it becomes a kind of site of almost activism or resistance to potential moral wrongs that might be being enacted by organisations or large-scale institutions, a place, a sort of safe place to resist? Is that the idea? Yeah, I certainly think that's the case. And again, there's a very strong strain in literature of thinking about the past and the way in which the past in some narratives perhaps is something that is safely cordoned off, you know, away from the present, whereas literature can insist on the present of the past, if that makes sense. And that can be really important in terms of thinking about the way in which maybe colonial projects and their ongoing effects are understood or the ways in which we think about memory or how we think about nation states or how we think about ourselves as modern subjects. So in that sense, there is possibly that kind of activism that is very much linked with this disruption of time that we oftentimes see in narrative. And does it work in the other direction as well? So if we're thinking about the future, does uh, narrative also sometimes insist on the future being present for a similar kind of purpose? I think that's the case in the sense that, again, <laughs> literature is, is so enormous and multiple, uh, it's hard to draw these generalisations out. But certainly if you think about you know, science fiction, for example, it's got a really great interest in the future. And it, there is that sense that while they're future directed, they're also very much speaking oftentimes to present conditions as well. So, yes, that idea of past, present and future is often collapsed in these narratives and that can be for aesthetic purposes, but it also can be for you know, thinking about how we're treating the world or how we treat other people, those kinds of things. Tanya Dalziel, she's Associate Professor of English and Literary Studies at the University of Western Australia. She was talking there with producer Sam Barron and you've been listening to part two in a four-part series on time. 
Next week, we're going to be looking at all the ways in which our perception of time can be chronically skewed to the point where you have to wonder how any of us ever manages to be on time for anything. So set your alarm for the Philosopher's Zone next week. I'm David Rutledge. Hope you can join me then. Bye for now.